Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, this morning we're in Joshua chapter 2, and I think the best way to begin is to simply read the whole chapter. Now, I know it's, it's 24 verses, and some people will say, you can't do that with a crowd. It's too long. But we're Christians, and we love God's Word. I want to make sure we're grounded in the Scriptures, so I'm going to read for you. Would you please follow along? It's Joshua chapter 2, 24 verses, a little bit longer. So hang in there, and I think it'll be easy to do because it's a fascinating story. Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True. The men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had lain in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go, to, go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house... 
His blood shall be on our head. But if you will tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now this is a fascinating story. And when you think of stories, you think of the characters and the perspective of the characters. And there are many perspectives to note within this story. Many characters in the story have their viewpoints. So let's do a little, a little literature exercise and, and just think briefly about the perspective of the different characters. So, so think of the spies and these, these two men going out from Israel. It's interesting that there's only two of them. And that's interesting because about 40 years prior, Moses had sent spies out into the land of Canaan. He sent, do you remember? He sent 12 spies. And of the 12, they all came back and they all said, the, the people there are too strong, except for how many? Except for two. And maybe there's some significance there that this time Joshua only sends two out. Maybe it was just a change in times, but maybe there was a a sense of only two were faithful last time. That's all we need this time. So he sends out two. And those spies, they, they must have had some trepidation, but apparently they had faith too. So they go into a walled city. Think about that. It's like a coffin. The whole city you're going into is enclosed. And when that gate is closed for the night, you are shut in. And they go into the city, and we don't know how they were detected. Maybe something about their clothing, maybe something about their speech, maybe something about the way they they functioned. Maybe there were people, counterintelligence on the lookout for them. But somehow they were detected, and, and we don't know if they were detected before they went to Rahab's house or after. Perhaps they were detected, and they had to run somewhere safe. And they got, you can imagine if this was a movie, that would be how it would go down. That someone gets tipped off, and they find out, and they run ahead to Rahab's house, and they just beat the pursuers to the house. And Rahab meets the pursuers at the door, and she gives them a false story. And somehow they get there. Maybe they even knew that somehow she would be sympathetic. But that's their situation. And then you think about the people of Jericho. The people of Jericho had heard stories for decades, for four decades. They heard about how Israel had crossed the Red Sea, how they escaped from Egypt, how they had defeated peoples on this side of the Red Sea, how they were gearing up and lining up and getting ready to come into their land and take them over. That's frightening. And then there's the king of Jericho himself. It was his responsibility to deal with the problem. There's this enormous people group right on the other side of the Jordan, not far away. He's not probably quite sure what to do. He's wondering if they're going to pull the trigger or not. And finally, he hears some news about spies. And so he sets his 
his plan into action and he has the pursuers and he, and he goes down and to find them out, he sends people to, to the prostitute's house. Isn't it fascinating that they believe the prostitute? Apparently they didn't search the house. And they believe. Maybe she was known to someone in the guard that went down to her house. And then you think about the pursuers themselves and how they had to run out after the spies and go out into the countryside. And they, they spent three days out there. Can you imagine what a brutal job this was, would have been? There would have been very little rest, if any. They had to look as hard as they could in every cave, in every hill, in every field for these spies. They had to end this reconnaissance to protect themselves. Think about Rahab's family. That's an interesting group of people. I wonder what that would have looked like. What was their relationship with Rahab? Were they in agreement with her that Israel was a real threat? Did they think she was crazy? Did she reveal to them, hey, I hid the Israelite spies? You know, I've been talking about Israel all this time. I actually, I hid their spies. What did they think of that? And then there's the Israelite nation, which really isn't talked about in this chapter. But there's a whole group of people waiting 40 years for this moment. Maybe they're chomping at the bit. The overall story has Joshua as a main character. Right? The book is named after him. And there's not much about Joshua in this chapter. Isn't that interesting? There's not much about Joshua in Joshua chapter 2. It's right at the beginning, and then he's there at the end. This is the first tactical move that Joshua makes. It's reconnaissance. And that lack of focus on him in this chapter, that's going to come back it, that's going to come into play in a little bit. But he, he looks at this and he says, okay, you know what I need to do? I need to send some spies out. And he sends two spies out. Can you believe that some people think that Joshua does this out of a lack of faith? Because they don't see God explicitly commanding the spies. Well, it's not recorded that God commands Joshua to send the spies. Maybe he did. Or maybe Joshua is simply being faithful with the calling that God gave to him. And that's good to see, isn't it? That whatever calling God gives to us, just be faithful in it. Do what's wise. Do what's responsible. Do what's right. God uses our straightforward embrace of the responsibilities he gives us. So there's a lot of perspective there. But this specific story, is focused primarily on a woman named Rahab, or apparently primarily on a woman named Rahab. Rahab is a citizen of Jericho. She's not an Israelite. She lives in Jericho. She is among the enemy. The enemy is her people. Her house is in the wall. And archaeologists have actually found cities where, where there are multiple layers of wall, layered from the inside out. And they actually found houses 
in between the walls, built in between the walls, where, where there'd be a house, where one wall of the house is the outer wall, and, and another wall of the house is the inner wall. And that's where Rahab lived. Probably not the best part of town, but that's where she lived. Probably among the first people to be harmed if there was a successful invasion, right? She lives in the wall. And Rahab is melting in fear because of the Israelite nation. That's not that far away on the other side of the Jordan River. Isn't that interesting language? Verses 9 and verses 11 tell us that our hearts melted. Let me get that first slide. As soon as we heard it, she says, our hearts melted. That's quite descriptive. And it conjures up thoughts of materials moving from solids to liquid through generally intense heat, right? So in her day, she would have had the opportunity to see the local smith using a furnace to reduce a solid material into something that can be poured, can be held in a, in a cup and poured out. That if it's not contained, it just spills out and is lost. And that's what she's feeling and that's how she describes the hearts of her, of, of, of her people. She's basically saying, our courage as, as a city with our walls used to be solid, used to be firm and strong. But when we heard about you Israelites and what you did, our courage lost its form and spilled away. Just melted. Think about that for a moment. When did they hear about Israel? What is she talking about? They heard about what Israel had done about 40 years prior. And what's fascinating is that God's people were the ones that didn't believe in that moment. Right? Because because God took away their courage, caused their hearts to melt. And then the Israelite spies came back and said, we can't do it. And the people didn't believe. So much of life is connected with our faith in God. Really all of life. All of what he calls us to do. Every moment of standing firm and courage. Trusting him. And and no matter what's going on in the world around us. it, It requires a faith that can feel counterintuitive in the moment. Because the world is raging and they seem so strong. It seems like they have everything on their side. And God is saying, will you believe me? Will you trust me? That had been going on all this time. Unbelief stole so much from that earlier generation of Israel. Let's not let it happen to us. But here's the point about Rahab. Rahab is fearful because she does not doubt that a day of wrath from God is coming. She knows it's coming. She knows the Israelites are going to come. She knows they will attack the city. She knows they will win. She knows her people will be destroyed. She knows it will be a day of wrath like they have never seen. It is not her experience that tells her this. It's what she's heard. And she has no doubt. And that perspective 
That knowledge that Rahab has, that faith that she has, the, the recognition that a day of wrath is coming, that brings us to the most important perspective in, in this entire story. And that's God's perspective. Now you know, not all points of view are equal, right? Not everyone's perspective are equal. People talk about relative truth. They talk about perspective. And what, they, what they're implying is that one person's perspective is as good as another. It's kind of like two people looking at a tree from a different angle. They're saying, well, the tree's not better or worse depending on your perspective. It's just, it just is. It's just a different angle. But that's not entirely true, is it? Not all points of view are equal. So, let's say a famous rock star has a daughter who is now all grown up. And you go to the concert of this aging rock star with 75,000 other screaming, cell phone waving fans. We want you to know the rest of us are not here to judge. All right? If you want to go to that concert. Now, after the concert, you happen to run into the celebrity's adult daughter. And just then, a reporter from Lancaster Online walks up and asks you both for your thoughts on the rock star's approach to parenting. Now, your perspective as a fan, as one of the fans among the 75,000 that night, it's not going to be very valuable on that subject. And it would be ridiculous and outrageous for you to start talking about the rock star's approach to parenting. It'd be ridiculous for you to consider it authoritative. On the flip side, his grown daughter may have something worthwhile to say. That's how it is, except much more with God's perspective. When God gives his perspective, it's better than everyone else's. It's authoritative. It's not simply a better point of view. It is right and wrong. It is the only accurate assessment. And it would be ridiculous to contend with God about what God says how things are. And so what's God's interpretation of this situation in Jericho? Well, regarding his people, regarding the Israelites, they're on the verge of the fulfillment of his covenants. They're on the verge of the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham and to Moses. To Joseph, for that matter. Right there, for God's people, they're on the verge of the promise. But regarding Jericho... And the Amorites that lived in Jericho. God's interpretation of this situation, the fulfillment of his promise to his people, is judgment for them. It is absolute, certain, coming judgment upon them. You see, when God promised Abraham to make him a great nation... He was telling them that something's going to happen in the future. And in one of those statements of promise, God says this to Abraham. He's talking about his people, Abraham's descendants. He says, and they shall come back here to the land of Canaan in the fourth generation. And then he says this, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And now... Here in Joshua 2, guess what? 
their iniquity is complete. And the time of judgment has come. And so the time of judgment, when judgment finally comes, there's some basis in experience. In other words, we, we see the judgment of God in smaller ways around us, right? So when someone dies, death itself is an expression of the judgment of God or, or disease is part of the fall and the curse. But when the day of judgment actually comes, it's like nothing else in our experience. It's beyond, it's, it's worse for those being judged than anything they've ever experienced. It's, it's set apart. And this is the way God works. God allows rebellion to a point. Like he's got a measuring cup. And he allows the sin to, to kind of fill up and, and, and it gets higher and higher and higher. But he doesn't allow it forever. And he's got a certain measurement, a certain line Where he says, when sin reaches this point, that's it. And it's not just here with Jericho. We see that in the scriptures. I'll give you two quick examples. You can see it in other places. You can see it explicitly. There's Noah and the great flood. When the sins of humanity reached a certain point, God said, that's it. I'm going to start over. I'm going to wipe out humanity except for this one family. And I'm going to start again with that family. And, and again, God does it with Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, he says, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abram at the time. And that's where Abram, may remember, pleads with him. Well, well, surely if there's just a few righteous people in the city, you'll save the city, right? You won't kill the righteous with the wicked. And he gets down to just a few and God says, okay, if there's just a few, I'll save it. It turns out there wasn't even a few. And the measurement was full and God poured out wrath. That's God's pattern. That's his pattern. And these prior examples are all a foreshadowing of the coming great day of the Lord when judgment, God's wrath, will be poured out. And God's wrath, his judgment, it flows out of who he is as a just God. God says, Pure justice, my justice, it will be satisfied. And so therefore, don't doubt the certainty of God's approaching wrath. Dear friend, it is going to happen. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Now God's wrath is frightening. And we see it taught to us here. In Joshua 2, what's going to happen to Jericho is going to happen to humanity. It's just a microcosm. It's a foreshadowing of what God will do. In the day that God saves his people, he will judge the world. And God's wrath is frightening. There's nothing more frightening than God's wrath. And what's fascinating, what's really fascinating in this story is that Rahab interprets this moment properly. She gets it. She sees it. Look at the words that Rahab says. She says in Joshua chapter 2 verse 9, I know 
that the Lord has given you, Israelites, the land. Whoa! She's the one sitting in the walled city. They're the wilderness wanderers. But she's saying to them, I know God's given this. It's already done in my mind. And then she says this in Joshua 2.11. And as soon as we heard it, she's talking about her people, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So somehow, even though she's an Amorite, she gets it. She gets it. And that's why we should study Rahab's response. We should look at it. We should focus on it. And spend some time considering it, even beyond this message today. Think of this woman and how the odds were stacked against her. And yet somehow, she comes to believe. Rahab says that the Lord is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You know what she's doing there? She's, she's worshiping. She's acknowledging God's absolute sovereignty over everything. She's saying the Lord is creator, owner, and king over all. And she's saying, she's saying even me, including me. She's saying he's not just Lord over you because you're his people. She's saying he's even Lord over me, even though I'm not one of his people. I owe my allegiance to him even though I don't belong to him yet. She's worshiping. She recognizes in the face of the coming judgment that this in her life is an ultimate moment. It is life or death. And it's even beyond life or death. It's ultimate truths. And her eyes are open to the ultimate truth. You see what's happening here? She believes. She has faith in God. Take a look. Let me go back just to... Well, that, that works too. So, look at the word LORD there and notice that it's in all caps. And when you see the word LORD in all caps, that's the English translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the LORD's special name. It's the, the name that God revealed himself as to the patriarchs and to Moses. And when, when Moses says to God, who should I say is sending me when I have to go to Pharaoh? Who should I say? What's, what should I say to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh? And he says, tell them I am. And he, just, he uses that, that expression of just presence and being forever. I am. And, and around that passage, you see this word, Yahweh, the Lord. And here, Rahab, the Amorite prostitute, is using the word Yahweh. She's not just saying, your God is the strongest among all the gods. She's saying, your God. Uniquely your God. The one that was revealed to Moses. He's God. She's saying, your God is the only God that matters. This is entirely unexpected. Of all the people on the face of the earth, Rahab is the last one who seems likely to come to faith in Yahweh, in the God of Israel, in our God. 
She has at least three strikes against her, right? She's a Gentile. She has no knowledge or, or any right to knowledge about Yahweh. She's completely outside of the confident people as a Gentile. And as Paul says to the, to the Ephesian church regarding their situation before Jesus, Paul says this to them, remember this? Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who Gentiles are. That's everyone without Yahweh. And that's Rahab. She wasn't born to Israelite parents, not even to one Israelite parent. Not only was she a Gentile, she was an Amorite. One of the people that hated the Jewish nation. One of the many Gentile peoples in Canaan. But they were especially wicked as they were known to sacrifice their children to gods. It was a brutal and pagan people. And of course, not only was she a Gentile Amorite, but she was a Gentile Amorite prostitute. In other words, she wasn't simply immoral. She was immoral for a living. She was immoral as a way of life. When others were immoral, she profited. When others were immoral, she got business. To increase her business, she needed more immorality. Perhaps that's all she could do, or perhaps she was a ritual prostitute at one of the pagan temples. But either way, immorality was her way of life. She took that gift of marital intimacy and she traded it in commerce as if it were buying and selling crops or lamp oil. So she seems an unlikely candidate for faith in the God of Israel. But this is the way it is. Where it's the least likely that God saves. Often those that should see, the noble and the educated, those with the most experience, often those that should see are blind, those that should hear are deaf, and those that consider themselves strong are weak and hear As we see in the new covenant as well, it's the weakest that becomes strong in Christ. The poorest become rich in faith. The blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and Rahab believes. Think. Think about her response. She knows she's in trouble along with everyone else in the city. And she believes. And when she believes, what does she do? She runs to mercy because she recognizes if the Lord doesn't have mercy on her, then there will be no mercy for her. There is no other way. She must have it from God and from His people. From God through His people. That's how she must have mercy or she will not have mercy. And this desperation, this requirement of mercy, this acknowledgement of the need for mercy, is too often missing among the people of this world and sometimes, dare I say, dear friend, from us, from God's people as well. Because if we were desperate for mercy before grace, then we would be amazed and grateful for it after we receive grace, right? I mean, if, we're really, if we really know 
that were facing utter destruction like Rahab before Jesus pays for our sins and gives us new life. If we really know that, and if we were desperate for mercy when we received it, it changes everything, doesn't it? Everything is filtered through the grace that is received after that. It changes us forever. Think, think about this. Too often we're upset with some situation and we're complaining or we're irritable or, or we're blaming. And, and, and perhaps, worst of all, we're, we're often bored with life. None of these flow from a heart that is alive and recognizes it was once desperate but has now been saved. Think of it this way. Has anyone ever done for you something so kind that you have settled in your heart and mind to always be grateful to that person? That when you're around them, you're always going to give them honor. You're always going to give them gratitude. Do you know anyone like that? Have you anyone like that in your life? Well, if you do, God has done something far greater for us and it should be reflected in who we are now. Rahab gives a full response. She knows she's in trouble. She knows she's under wrath. She knows it is imminent. And she puts her life on the line because of it. Had she been found out by the king, given who she was, she would have been utterly destroyed. Probably her whole family would have been destroyed. Not only does she put her life on the line, she repudiates her past identity. She knows her city is going to be destroyed. She knew life was only found in God's people. And so someone with a, with a poor perspective might look at Rahab and say, Oh my goodness, she was a traitor to her people. No. They were a traitor to God. And she was repenting of that now. She knows that there's only death and darkness among the Gentile pagans and she must now turn to the God of light and life. And so she repudiates her past identity. She says, I, I don't want to be a part of this people. I know that I am, but I hope that I can get out of that now. And she wants to identify with God's, God's people. She identifies with them. As I mentioned, there's that use of the, the word Lord. Not only that, but she's willing afterward to live among them. She's not one that says, I'm a proud uh, Amorite of Jericho and I would rather die than be free from this people. She does not do that. In her humility, she fully repudiates who she once was so that she can become one of God's people. And isn't that a struggle for us sometimes? When we're trying to, to do both, when we're trying to be acceptable to the world and belong to Christ. I think we need to understand that there is no life or light in this world outside of Jesus Christ. And we're going to have to repudiate our past identity to identify with God's people completely. And so, Rahab's ready. She's saying, make me a Jew. Call me an Israelite. She's willing to live among them after. She's totally humbled in her repentance. She says, let me embrace my new identity. This is who I want to be. You know, afterwards, she even marries a Jew, a man of the tribe of Judah named Salmon. 
And the Lord considers her a full part of his people. She's not just sort of part Jewish or, or someone that you sort, of, you, you sort of let in but not completely. That's not the way God looks at it. There was no question that she belonged to God. And so they have a son. And his name is Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth the Moabitess. And they have a son and his name is Obed. And Obed has a son, and his name is Jesse, and Jesse has his son, and his name is David, who becomes king. God fully accepted repentant Rahab, without qualification, into his people. And that's what God does with us. When we repudiate our past and identify with Christ... He makes us full members of his family. And so I think we need to study the response of Ahab. Because too often people want to negotiate. When it feels like wrath is far away. When it feels like it's far behind. Or even when it's coming closer. We find ways to negotiate. There were many Amorites in Jericho. There were probably others that Rahab spoke to. But she is the only one that we know that was saved. Think about that. 99.9 whatever percent. In other words, the typical logic of humanity finds a way to negotiate a way why they don't have to worry about the wrath of God. Even when it's imminent and just days away and completely destructive. And we need God's mercy. And if you don't have it today, if you have not trusted Jesus, if you cannot come to these tables and say, I belong to him, then today is the day to repent and trust him. It's important to point out this whole story here In Joshua chapter 2, when you think about the book, when you study the book, it almost seems out of place. You have Joshua gearing up the people. Moses has passed. Joshua gearing up the people to go in. The next thing they should do, they've been waiting all this time, is cross the Jordan in a miraculous fashion, take on Jericho and the cities that follow, and conquer the land, right? It seems like that's what would be next. But instead, we get this extended story about an Amorite prostitute who trusts Yahweh. Now that is fascinating because Joshua is a story of conquest, right? What does that tell us? Well, this story is out of place unless God has more in mind than simple wrath. It is out of place unless God is love. Unless God loves to show mercy. And so, God inserts right here, before the wrath comes, He inserts a story of mercy to the most unlikely of people. And He shows full 
and complete loving mercy to Rahab. And this is why God hasn't sent his final wrath yet. If you're here today and you're doubting whether God's wrath will ever come, that you ever have to worry about it, or that is any kind of reality that should affect your life at all, and I think Christians can feel that way at times, like I, this is never going to happen. This is why God's wrath has not come yet. It's because he's merciful, because he's loving. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, for the unbeliever, wrath is coming. And you need to repent. And God has been patient with you. It's the only reason wrath hasn't come yet. Because God doesn't want you to perish. Turn to Christ Jesus. I think there's a lesson here for the believer too. Even though we don't experience God's wrath, once we have Christ Jesus and our sins are taken away and we're counted righteous, we still face discipline for our sin. And, and be certain that if you continue or persist in sin, that your sins are going to find you out and God will bring discipline. Look at this passage. Dear brothers and sisters, God is patient to you. That's the principle. He's patient. He wants you to turn and repent from stubbornness and and pride. But don't test him. Because your discipline will be that much more severe. And so let God work in you. Remember, there's some urgency to sanctification. God wants to work in you. And he's faithful and he's patient. And he will continue to be loving. But today's the day to lay aside the sin that you may be persisting in. Because the Lord is loving and patient. He always has been from the day he saved you to this very moment. So Rahab believes and she acts consistently with her belief. She protects the spies. She hides them. She gives them information. She says, go to the hills for three days and don't come down. Go go there. Stay there till all the pursuers. I, I know these pursuers, this posse. You don't want to mess with them. Hide away. And they do. She gives them that information. She lets them down through the window in the wall. And they promise her that she and her family are going to be saved. But two conditions must be met if they are to be saved. They promise her that if she puts the scarlet cord in the window, they'll be saved. And if they all remain inside her house while the battle is raging, that inside the house there they will find shelter from the wrath that is to come. And that no matter what, no one from inside the household is to go outside the household. Because if they do that and they die, it's on them. But if they stay in the household, they will be saved. You think about that, of course. The scarlet cord is the color of blood, right? And the payment of sin, as we know, is death. And so blood has to be shed for justice to be served. The shedding of blood is is a demonstration of death. The payment for sin. And when you think of that scarlet cord, your your mind, of course, immediately goes to the Passover where the blood of a blemishless lamb was taken and it was painted over the, over the, the threshold 
uh, of the doorposts. And it was a it was a demonstration that anyone in here had their sins paid for. Could this scarlet cord have represented the idea of redemption? The idea that those connected with that scarlet cord had their sins paid for. That they were redeemed. That's what happens with us in Jesus. His blood pays for our sin. What about being inside the house? When the battle rages, there's going to be death and destruction all around. The whole place is coming down. But inside that house between the walls, they're going to be safe. Sort of like Noah's Ark. Everyone outside of the ark perished and died in a flood of wrath, in an an irresistible wave of death. But everyone inside that ark was saved. It's sort of like Noah's Ark, but more accurately, it's being in Christ. See, on the last day, when God's wrath comes, those who are in Christ, who have had their sins paid for by the blood of Christ, are now kept in Christ and are safe from the storm, safe from the wrath, safe from judgment. And so Rahab asks for a a covenant sign. She asks for a a truth sign, a a sign that she and her household, her father and mother's household would be safe. And they say, okay, here are the signs. The signs of, of salvation here for you. It's the scarlet cord and it's the house. These are the signs for you. And in the few days that followed there, before the attack, she would have held that cord, right? That's, that's something she's not going to lose. And you know what else? She made sure she knew where everyone was, right? You can imagine. Hey, everyone, when this goes down, you've got to be able to get into the house. Make sure no one is outside of the house. I need to know where you are at all times so I can call you and you can get here in a matter of five minutes. And she had the cord and she had the house and they were signs of salvation for her. She had to be comforted by that knowledge. Don't forget how strongly she believed. She put her life at risk, her whole family's life at risk. She believed that strongly that this was the only way to be saved. And so when the spies left and gave her those signs, she must have been comforted by that covenant they made with her and the signs they gave her. I want to ask the ushers to come and the band to come. We're going to partake together of communion in just a moment. Today we're going to come to the tables. And so when the ushers release your row, don't hesitate, come right on up. Partake. Return to your seats and let's worship the Lord as we do. We'll sing and glorify Him. And as you come to these tables, the Lord's table, and as you see the, the cup and the cracker, as you, as you see the cup and the bread, and you think of the body and the blood, remember that the blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sin and, the, and that you're in Christ. That your sins are paid for and you're safe 
from wrath and allow it to comfort you. What troubles you today? Maybe there are some dads here today that are troubled or concerned for the direction of their children or their family and the way things are. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's extended family. Take comfort in the knowledge that you are belonging to Christ, that your sins are paid for, that you're safe in Him. And as you come and you partake of the signs of that salvation, the signs of that covenant, rest. Have peace. Deep in your heart, let there be peace. Maybe you're not a dad or maybe there's something else going on. Whatever the situation is, where you feel troubled and turmoil, when you belong to Christ Jesus, you have the comfort of knowing that you're safe from the wrath of God. And if safe from the wrath of God, then you have peace no matter what. There's nothing that can take that peace away. It belongs to you. And so as you come today, take to heart this story of mercy. Because as you take it to heart, you'll be ready for wrath. And if you're ready for the wrath of God, you're ready for everything. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.